Hello and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is James Kenny, and this chapter is number 33, entitled The Introduction to Ireland of the Auxiliaries and the Black and Tans, 1920-1921. I hope you like this and that you will share it with others on social media. And if you wish to become a patron of the podcast, you can do so by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. Thank you and enjoy. As argued by Dr. William Lowe, the British government's response to violence, which was to increase the militarization of the RIC, helped to advance the Irish Republican agenda by raising the overall level of violence and discrediting what remained of the public image of the RIC as a civil police force. Reinforcements were urgently needed in Ireland as the conflict escalated. But former Inspector General Sir Joseph Byrne had resisted a proposal to recruit former soldiers to the RIC rather than deploy additional troops. He felt that such a force could not be controlled by the Constabulary Code of Discipline. Sean William Gannon tells that the auxiliaries formed in mid-1920 was unlike the Black and Tans, separately recruited from the regular RIC. Recruitment was confined to ex-officers and it was organised into military-style companies. The auxiliaries were temporarily contracted and had the status of temporary cadets. Their drivers and logistical support personnel had the rank of temporary constables. Some 2,200 men saw service in the Auxiliary Division. The decision to recruit British ex-servicemen into the RIC in 1920 had its roots in the force's incremental alienation within Irish society after 1916. The force had maintained generally difficult relations with the population it policed throughout the 19th century when it formed Dublin Castle's main coercive arm. The influx of British ex-servicemen into the RIC in 1920 was the result of a manpower crisis and demoralisation within the force. But by the turn of the 20th century, it was evolving into a relatively domesticated force, devoting most of its time to civil matters such as checking weights and measures, policing road traffic and collecting the census. But the RIC continued political surveillance and arrested separatist activists. So the upsurge in nationalist sentiment in the aftermath of the Easter Rising saw its gradual estrangement from the communities in which it served. This estrangement gained pace after the first Dáil's declaration of Irish independence in January 1919 and was officialised by its president, Eamon de Valera, on the 10th of April 
when he denounced the RIC as agents of the foreign usurper, whose history was a continuity of brutal treason against their own people. This marked the beginning of a two-year campaign of social ostracism against the force by Sinn Féin, which was so intense and effective that it had been termed a social war. The War of Independence opened with the shooting dead of two constables at Salahed Beg on the 21st of January 1919 by members of the 3rd Tipperary Brigade and the RIC afterwards formed the front line against a gathering guerrilla insurgency. It was untrained, unequipped and otherwise unsuited to counter. The progressive demoralization in which the RIC's deteriorating situation resulted led to resignations. As fearful for themselves and their families, policemen left or were intimidated out. Recruitment was also adversely affected and it became increasingly difficult to replace those who resigned or retired, which in 1919 amounted to some 12% of the force. The manpower crisis to which this gave rise peaked in the summer of 1920, when there was an average of 52 resignations and just seven enlistments per week. But it was sufficiently clear by the late autumn of 1919 that recruitment in Ireland was irrecoverably compromised. As early as May 1919, the First Lord of the Admiralty, Walter Long, was urging Ireland's Viceroy, Lord John French, to use demobilised British soldiers to bolster the RIC. Despite the misgivings of the Forces Inspector General Joseph Byrne, who warned prophetically that ex-soldiers would not be amenable to police discipline, French agreed to Long's suggestion. Byrne, increasingly seen by Long and French as soft on Sinn Féin, was eventually removed from his post and replaced with his deputy, T.J. Smith, who supported the recruitment of ex-soldiers. On the 27th of December 1919, Dublin Castle authorised the extension of RIC recruitment to Britain. Offices were immediately opened in London, Liverpool and Glasgow, and the first British constables were enrolled on the 2nd of January 1920. In November 1920, T.J. Smith retired as RIC Inspector General and was replaced by Henry Hugh Tudor. Sean William Gannon says, May 2020 marks the centenary of one of the most lamentable appointments in modern Irish history, that of Major General Henry Hugh Tudor as police advisor to the Viceroy on the 15th of May 1920. Four days previously, the British Cabinet had decided that a special officer with suitable qualifications and experience was now required to supervise the entire organisation of the Royal Irish Constabulary and the Dublin Metropolitan Police. And the War Secretary, Winston Churchill, recommended Tudor for the job. Tudor had no policing experience. He was in fact a lifelong soldier who had made a successful army career. On leaving the Royal Military Academy in Woolwich in 1890, 
he was commissioned into the Royal Horse Artillery, serving first in India and then South Africa during the period of the Second Anglo-Boer War. He was severely wounded at the Battle of Magersfontein in December 1899, but recovered well enough to return to duty. He was subsequently stationed in Britain, India and Egypt. It is generally accepted that his chief qualification for the position of police advisor in Ireland was his close friendship with the War Secretary, Winston Churchill. Forged during shared army service in India in the mid-1890s, Indeed, writing to Churchill in September 1923, when he was serving in another Churchill secured role, he acknowledged that he would probably have been on half pay long ago for a considerable time, instead of having three or more interesting years, had it not been for his friend's interventions. Tudor, who styled himself Chief of Police, saw his task in Ireland as nothing less than the restoration of law and order through a revitalized police operation. In his view, the whole country was intimidated by Sinn Féin and would thank God for strong measures. And he proposed, amongst others, the blanket introduction of identity cards, communal punishments such as fines, the replacement of civil courts with courts martial, and the deportation of Republican prisoners. As the then failing RIC was clearly inadequate to the task Tudor set it, he embarked on a program of militarization aimed at boosting its counterinsurgency capability and force morale, replacing the force's obsolete weaponry with more modern issue, restructuring its feeble intelligence service, improving coordination with the military and appointing old soldiers to senior roles. Most notably, he installed Brigadier General Ormond D. Lepi Winter, an old army friend, as head of intelligence and deputy chief of police. The centerpiece of Tudor's plan to reinvigorate the police counterinsurgency was the formation of the Auxiliary RIC, or ADRIC a 1,500-strong, gendarmerie-style striking force composed of demobilised British officers. Introduced in summer 1920, 17 companies between 80 and 100 men strong were deployed to areas of significant insurgent activity, where well-armed and highly mobile. They tried to root out and neutralise the local IRA. Tudor's militarization of the RIC indeed proved calamitous. Within six months of Tudor's appointment, the force was internationally notorious, particularly the ADRIC, which, while operating quasi-autonomously, remained under nominal RIC command. In May 1920, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, Sir Henry Wilson, denounced Tudor's plan for the force as truly a desperate and hopeless expedient, bound to fail, and his prediction that it would inevitably have no discipline, no esprit de corps, no cohesion, no training, proved prescient. The auxiliary division 
went on to commit the most infamous crimes of the entire revolutionary period. For example, the torture and murder of the Lachnan brothers, the shooting of Ellie Quinn and Father Griffin, the burning of Cork and the Limerick curfew murders, with what appeared to be Tudor's tacit support. For while paying lip service to the requirement for police discipline and criticizing property destruction and reckless wildfire, he adopted a conspicuously lenient approach to reprisals, which shaded into what Assistant Undersecretary at Dublin Castle, Mark Sturgis, termed passive approval at certain times. Most notoriously, Tudor reinstated 21 auxiliaries dismissed by Adric commander Frank Crozio in consequence of a looting and burning in Trim, resulting in Crozier's resignation. Tudor was, however, also constitutionally blind to bad police conduct. As Sturgis observed in January 1921, he does not consciously deceive, but his belief in all that's good of his black and tans and his inability to believe a word against them is superhuman. By spring 1921, Tudor had lost the confidence of both the general officer commanding in Ireland, Neville MacReady, to whom Tudor effectively reported, although technically he outranked him, and Sir Henry Wilson, who in March 1921 wrote in his diary, I am certain that Tudor, Winter, and a whole crowd of these wild devils ought to be packed off. Tudor's failure to appreciate the conflict's political context lost him the confidence of the government in London as well. Thus Wilson spoke for most of the British side when he appraised Tudor as a gallant fellow on service, but a man of no balance, knowledge or judgment, and therefore a deplorable selection for his present post. Tudor's post was abolished in consequence of the RIC's disbandment in 1922, and he once again required work. Once again, his friend Churchill obliged. Churchill was now Secretary of State at the Colonial Office, the Middle East Department, of which bore full responsibility for the recently acquired Palestine mandate. Tudor was appointed General Officer Commanding and Inspector General of Police and Prisons in February and assumed command of all forces, civil and military. Employed on imperial defence and internal security in Palestine, in the dual capacity on the 15th of June, 1922. At first the uptake to John the Black and Tans was modest, comprising a monthly average of 100 enlistments between January and June 1920. However, the doubling of the RIC constable's salary starting in July led to an upsurge in interest resulting in over 8,000 British and 2,000 Irish enlistments in the subsequent 12 months. Small detachments of so-called English recruits began arriving in Ireland from 7th of January 1920. After cursory training in the Phoenix Park Depot, they were distributed around the country, where they were barracked with and served alongside the old RIC. Although there were no formal distinction between them, the appearance of what the Meat Chronicle termed this Royal English Constabulary soon caused a stir, 
not least because of its peculiar attire. The continuance of the IRA's campaign, despite the RIC's enforced reinforcement, led to calls for a clear counterinsurgency strategy and reluctant to use the army. The Secretary of State for War, Winston Churchill, proposed the formation of a separately recruited emergency corps of gendarmerie to root out and neutralize the IRA. The result was the Auxiliary Division of the RIC, ADRIC, raised from July 1920 from amongst demobilized officers. Pay was particularly attractive at one pound a day, base pay, was double that of the regular RIC and supplemented with generous allowances. But unlike in the case of the permanent pensionable black and tans, recruits were temporarily contracted, mostly for one year. The ADRIC eventually comprised 21 military-style companies, comprising 70 to 100 temporary cadets. These companies were deployed in areas of significant insurgent activity where, while nominally under the control of RIC county inspectors and divisional commissioners, they essentially operated autonomously. Logistical assistance was provided to ADRIC by a separately recruited 1,000-strong Veterans and Drivers Division, made up of veteran ex-soldiers of 35 years of age and upwards, enrolled on a one-year contract at 10 shillings per day. These, and another 1,500 men recruited for the RIC's Motor Division, were the actual temporary constables rather than the black and tan recruits to the RIC. The auxiliaries did not have a standard uniform and they turned themselves out in various combinations of police, military and occasionally civilian attire. Although they were distinguished from black and tans by their beret-style headdress, tam shanters and later balmorals. Confusion between the black and tans and auxiliaries was widespread in Ireland and Britain, including at the highest levels of government. Irish Chief Secretary Sir Hammer Greenwood eventually issued a clarification in Parliament. The so-called black and tans are not a separate force, but are recruits to the permanent establishment of the RIC. The Auxiliary Division is also a part of the RIC, but consists altogether of ex-officers who have been recruited for temporary service only. Nonetheless, British officials, including Churchill himself, used the terms auxiliaries, auxiliary division and black and tans interchangeably when referring to the two groups combined. In late August 1920, the weekly summary warned that the black and tans would make Ireland an appropriate hell for those whose trade is agitation and whose method is murder, and they were primarily responsible for some of the gravest crimes of the Irish Revolutionary period, including murders, burning, looting, and sexual assaults. Dermot Ferreter, in his article, Black and Tans, Half Drunk, Whole Mad, and One-Fifth Irish, wrote, One of the striking developments in 1919 in Ireland was the extent to which the Royal Irish Constabulary, policing Ireland since 1836, came under siege by the IRA and was increasingly ostracised by the communities it served. Cormac O'Grada 
and Kevin O'Rourke tell us that Ireland on the eve of independence was predominantly a rural economy, save for the industrialised areas in the northeast. It was poorer than the rest of the UK, with a GDP per capita that was just 62% of Britain's. While Frank Geary and Tom Stark said that living standards were comparable with other European countries, Finland, Norway, Sweden, Portugal and Spain all had lower GDP per capita than Ireland, while Denmark's was not much greater. During this time, Ireland's external trade was dominated by Britain, to which it exported agricultural products and from which it imported manufactured goods. Trade policy was determined in London, and this meant that Ireland effectively operated a free trade policy. Without a parliament of its own since the Act of Union of 1800, MPs were elected to the Westminster Parliament to represent Irish interests, but economic policy was determined in London. After the War of Independence from 1919 to 1921, the Anglo-Irish Treaty created a free state with fiscal independence, covering 26 of Ireland's 32 counties. The remaining six counties in the north remained part of the UK as Northern Ireland. John Fitzgerald and Sean Kenny say that despite unionist fears about the fiscal capacity of an independent Ireland, Irish fiscal policy was decidedly conservative for its first 50 years of independence. Public finances were helped significantly by the effective cancellation of Ireland's national debt. After a period of negotiation, a substantial portion of the Irish debt was written off in 1925, although the political price of formally accepting the existing border with Northern Ireland was high. Between the 1920s and the 1950s, budget deficits were controlled and debt interest rarely exceeded 2% of the total value of goods and services produced in the country, that is, its gross national product, GNP. Indeed, the economic crisis of the 1950s was compounded by excessive fiscal caution rather than excess. The Black and Tans resorted to severe cruelties on innocent Irish people. As well as shooting women and children, they tied those men captured to the outside of their trucks for sport, so that if they were shot at or ambushed, their prisoner would be shot or wounded. 21st of August 1920, the Black and Tans went on the rampage and burnt down 15 creameries, including one in Nina, and not satisfied with that, they burned the whole street from O'Mara's Hotel to the Market Cross. In the main, the activity of the Black and Tans was horrible, and their superiors had assured them that they would not be held accountable for the murder of volunteers or their families, or for burning and destroying their homes, premises, farms, or crops. Dermot O'Hegarty, the Director of Communications for the IRA from July 1918 to March 1920, left no room for ambiguity when he composed a memorandum on what the targeting of the RAC should amount to. The police should be treated as persons 
who having been adjudged guilty of treason to their country, are regarded as unworthy to enjoy any of the privileges or comforts which arise from cordial relations with the public. Brigadier General Sir Joseph Aloysius Byrne, 1874-1942, was the Royal Irish Constabulary's Inspector General from 1916 until 1920. From Derry, Byrne joined the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers and was commissioned a second lieutenant and then promoted to lieutenant. After the outbreak of the war in South Africa in October 1899, Byrne was with the 1st Battalion of his regiment as it arrived in Durban for war service later the same year. The regiment soon saw heavy fighting and Byrne was wounded at the siege of Ladysmith, following which he returned home on the hospital ship Maine in March 1900. Promoted to captain, he returned to South Africa and continued to serve during the remainder of the war, but was invalided home in March 1902. He later served as Assistant Adjutant General at the War Office and was made Deputy Adjutant General, Irish Command, on the 27th of April 1916, during the Easter Rising. He was appointed Inspector General of the Royal Irish Constabulary on the 1st of August 1916. Byrne held the position of Inspector General until the 6th of January 1920. Following his police service, he was called to the bar at Lincoln's Inn, London, in 1921. Later that year, he entered the colonial service and in 1922 was appointed Governor of the Seychelles. Thereafter, he was made Governor of Sierra Leone from 1927 to 1929 and again from 1930 to 1931. In 1931, he was made Governor of Kenya. His time in Kenya coincided with the Worldwide Depression. Joseph Byrne retired in 1936 and died on the 13th of November 1942 in Surrey, England. One of the worst black and tan offenders, Inspector General Gerald Smith, was a Belfast Protestant whose Unionist sympathies reflected more closely those of Colonial Office Minister Walter Long. Walter Hume Long, 1st Viscount Long, 1854-1924, was a British Unionist politician in a political career spanning over 40 years. He held office as President of the Board of Agriculture, President of the Local Government Board, Chief Secretary for Ireland, Secretary of State for the Colonies, and First Lord of the Admiralty. He is also remembered for his links with Irish Unionism and served as leader of the Irish Unionist Party in the House of Commons from 1906 to 1910. Recruitment to the new police forces began in earnest following Smith's appointment, as argued by Charles Townsend. The old RIC had passed and was already alienated from the community. Now it was to be made truly alien by an influx of foreign recruits, referred to in history as the Black and Tans. Black and Tans, the name given to the British recruits, enrolled in the RIC from January 1920 to July 1921. Their colloquial name derived from the makeshift uniforms they were issued because of a shortage of RIC uniforms, green police tunics and khaki military trousers, which together resembled the distinctive markings of the famous pack of Limerick foxhounds. When the Irish Republican agitation intensified after World War I, a large proportion of the RIC resigned. They were replaced by these temporary and mostly English recruits. A lot were jobless former soldiers who were paid 10 shillings a day. 
In seeking to counter the terrorism of the IRA, the Black and Tans themselves engaged in brutal reprisals, notably on Bloody Sunday, November the 21st, 1920. The IRA killed 11 Englishmen suspected of being intelligence agents. The Black and Tans took revenge the same afternoon, attacking spectators at a Gaelic football match in Croke Park, killing 12 and wounding 60. The intent was clear from the start, as the commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Gerald Smith, made clear in an address to his first recruits. Smith had lost an arm in the Great War and had well-known Unionist sympathies. He stated, should the order hands up, not be immediately obeyed. Shoot, and shoot with effect. If the persons approaching a patrol carry their hands in their pockets or are in any way suspicious looking, shoot them down. You may make mistakes occasionally, and innocent persons may be shot, but that cannot be helped, and you are bound to get the right parties sometimes. The more you shoot, the better I will like you. And I assure you, no policeman will get into trouble for shooting any man. Hunger strikers will be allowed to die in jail, the more the merrier. Some of them have died already, and a damn bad job they were not all allowed to die. As a matter of fact, some of them have already been dealt with in a manner their friends will never hear about. An emigrant ship left an Irish port for a foreign port lately, with lots of Sinn Feiners on board. I assure you, men, it will never land. That is nearly all I have to say to you. General Tudor and myself want your assistance in carrying out this scheme and wiping out Sinn Féin. Any man who is prepared to be a hindrance rather than a help to us had better leave the job at once. That was too much for an Irish-born recruit. After his speech, Sligo-born Constable Jeremiah Mee stepped forward and addressed Smith, saying, By your accent, I take it you are an Englishman, and in your ignorance, forget that you are addressing Irishmen. He then removed his cap, belt, bayonet, and gun, laid them on the table and continued, These too are English. Take them as a present from me, and to hell with you. You are a murderer. Jeremiah Mee, 1889-1953, was a member of the RIC and leader of the Listol Mutiny in 1920. He was born in the townland of Knockawans East, near Denimani, County Galway. He was the fourth child of John and Ellen Mee, and had four brothers and four sisters. He left school at the age of 12 and worked on his father's farm, until he joined the RIC on the 16th of August, 1910, age 19. He was first stationed in Kesh, County Sligo, in 1911. In 1919, he was stationed at Listowel County Kerry. In June 1920, the transfer of 14 constables was ordered from Listowel Barracks as the military were to take control. The constables at Listowel, led by me, refused the transfers as they felt military intervention unnecessary in the area. On the 19th of June, Divisional Police Commissioner for Munster, Lieutenant Colonel Gerald Bryce Ferguson Smith, came to Listowel to give a speech to the constables, in which he called for more aggressive action against those who would not obey police and military commands immediately. After an angry reaction from me, Smith ordered that he be placed under arrest, which the remaining constables prevented. After a period of quiet in the barracks, me, along with four other constables, left the force. 
Smith's speech at Listowel was published in the Freeman's Journal on the 10th of July 1920, following which he was shot dead on the 17th of July 1920 in the county club, County Cork. Following the mutiny, Jeremiah Mee made contact with Countess Markovich and Michael Collins, becoming involved with Sinn Féin, helping former RIC officers find employment. He was involved with the boycotting of Belfast banks and businesses, which was instigated by the Republican Dole. Mee later worked for the Irish White Cross and in the oil industry for British petroleum and Russian oil products. Following that, he worked in the Department of Local Government and Public Health. Jeremiah Mee died on the 8th of May 1953 and is buried in Glasnevin Cemetery. Mainly, although by no means entirely, on account of its misconduct, the RIC became a casualty of the Anglo-Irish Peace Treaty. Its disbandment commenced in January 1922 and concluded on the 31st of August. The auxiliaries were first stood down, followed, broadly speaking, by the Black and Tans, and finally, the old RIC. They sailed their boats up to the island To the west, out to the west To the land of the golden sunset
put their roots down and they prosper. Fought their battles through the years. They fought their battles.